If I were to ask each one of you to make a list of impossible things that you as a human being cannot do, what would you write down on that list? A list of impossible things that human beings cannot do. Here are some that I jotted down. You cannot lick your elbows. And some of you are trying now. You can do that at home. It is physiologically impossible, and they don't teach you this at med school, for you to be able to lick your own elbows. Just trust me, I tried just to make sure. You cannot travel at light speed. It is physiologically impossible. In fact, you cannot fly using your own power. That is an impossibility for a human being. You cannot run a mile in under two minutes. You cannot walk on water. You can try, but you can't. And as long as you can hold your breath, you think, you will never be able to hold your breath for an hour. Now, don't go trying, trying this at home. You just can't. Trust me on that. You cannot tickle yourself. It is impossible. Some of you I see are doing it now. You can't. Because the way your brain is wired, it knows that you're going to tickle yourself. And so it turns off those synaptic responses. You, with your own power, cannot raise yourself from the dead. You cannot change your past. Now, if someone claims that they can do what you know to be humanly impossible, your first response would be to say to them, Prove it. Prove that you can do the impossible. Certainly words are not sufficient to authenticate a claim of impossibility. When God tells us in the scriptures that he can do impossible things, our natural response is to tell him, Lord, prove it. Prove it. And he will do just that as we continue our study in the book of Ezekiel. Because God is going to prove that He can do the impossible in order to give hopeless people great hope. Now how does knowing that we have a God who does the impossible give encouragement to us? That's what we want to study this morning. You see, we've been studying the book of Ezekiel, and we've been challenging each and every one of you to live as a watchman of this generation so that you can make an impact in this generation. The problem of many of us is that we aren't very strong in our conviction as watchmen. And it boils down to the fact that we don't really trust the God we say we trust. To be a steadfast watchman of this generation, we have to come to the acknowledgement and realization that we have a God whom we worship and fully trust who can indeed do the impossible. Not simply paying lip service to the fact that He does the impossible, but by really believing it. And by believing it, transforming our very lives. Because if you don't really believe that God is able to do what He says He can do, then your faith will wilt when people challenge you that God cannot raise someone from the dead. Your faith may waver when the world challenges you that there is no God that can die in your place. But our God certainly can do those things. How do we find steadfastness in believing in a God who does the impossible? 
to grant hope to the hopeless. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to be taking a look at chapters 35 to 37. Of course, we don't have time to exposit every verse because of the length of these chapters, but I hope you're going to go back home and read these chapters in its entirety so that the Word of God can speak to your heart. Now, if you remember from a few weeks back, we mentioned in chapter 33 of this book that there's a fundamental shift from the theme of the first part of this book to the second part. The first part was a condemnation and a warning to the people of Israel of impending judgment by the Babylonians. But in the pivot chapter of 33, the message changes to one of comfort and encouragement to a people who are feeling very hopeless. What historical event precipitated this thematic change in this book? You see, in chapter 33, we're told that the prophesied destruction of Jerusalem has occurred. And now the nation of Judah has finally been exiled by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And therefore, in chapter 33, Ezekiel the prophet is recommissioned as a watchman for his people, so now he can bring words of comfort from the Lord to tell them about God's future plan for them, which would then serve as encouragement to them as a nation and as a people that God has not abandoned them. It's interesting that in chapter 35, there is a second prophecy here against the nation of Edom, the first we studied in chapter 25. How would a judgment upon the Edomites serve as a comfort to a hopeless people? Because in chapter 35, it shows that God will punish those who mistreat His chosen people. God will deal with those who take advantage of the nation He still loved, even though that nation was under His discipline. This idea is encapsulated in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 35. Let me read these verses so that you get an idea. Thus says the Lord God, The whole earth will rejoice when I make you desolate, as you rejoiced because the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate. So I will do to you, you shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, as well as all of Edom, all of it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord." Edom represents all the four nations that had made fun and abused the people of Israel. They laughed at Israel's destruction. And God says, while you rejoice at their destruction in my temporary discipline, I will also destroy you. And that should serve as a comfort to the people of Israel who were feeling quite hopeless. Now to further encourage the exilic audience, the Lord God gives words of prophecy in chapter 36. He tells the people in the nation of Israel, I will bless you once again. And if you have time, read this chapter in detail. It's a beautiful chapter. Verses 1 to 15, using a mountain metaphor, tells us that God, while He judges other nations, will restore Israel. And then in the second half of this book, verses 16 all the way to 38, it looks specifically at how God will restore and bless his people. Look at these wonderful words of comfort in verses 24 to 27 of what God does to his people when they repent of their sins and they experience God's restoration. Verse 24 of chapter 36. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all of your idols. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. What wonderful words of comfort as God tells a hopeless people, He will restore them. Now as you read this chapter, you may feel that the nation of Israel doesn't deserve this sort of restoration. After their history and generation after generation of continual sin, But here in this chapter, the Lord makes very clear that He does not restore these people because they deserve it. Heaven knows that the people of Israel, the Jewish people, do not deserve God's love and grace. They've exhausted it, you can say. But God says, I want to make one thing very clear. Yes, I restore them by my grace. Yes, my unconditional love is one of the bases for why I restore them and forgive them. But what's at stake is my very character. You see, the very character of God compels Him to restore the nation of Israel. Because way back when, He made a promise to the people of Israel through their forefather Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, reiterated in Genesis chapter 15, that He will never abandon the Jewish people. He will never replace them. He will bless them in spite of what they do. God makes with Christians a very similar promise. That is why we affirm in this church, once saved, always saved. The picture of how God deals with Israel is a picture of how God deals with us. But because God made a promise with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even David and so on and so forth, God says, I must restore my people because it speaks of my character. Look at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. My goodness. The Lord says, I don't do it because of you. In fact, you have profaned my name. You've abused my name. Verse 23, But I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in your midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you, before their eyes. God says, when you come to me in repentance and when I restore you, the nations of the world will proclaim that God is a promise-keeping God. And God's name will once again be glorified. God says, my reputation and my character is at stake. Because at that moment, perhaps the Babylonians and the surrounding neighbors were laughing at the God of Israel. The God of Israel isn't very powerful The God of Israel has abandoned His own people. He's quite weak, actually, not realizing that the nation of Israel was under God's discipline. But God says, I'm going to show them. 
Israel's future restoration and Israel's future blessings will proclaim to the world that there is only one true God and he will be respected by all nations. Look at verse 36. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as holy sacrifices, like the flock of Jerusalem on its feast day. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. The prophecies of Ezekiel chapter 36 will find its fulfillment in the future yet to come in what we call the millennium after the rapture of the church. But perhaps there are those back then, as there are today, who with doubt in their mind wonder whether these prophecies will actually come true. You see, in the time of Ezekiel, they saw as eyewitnesses the devastating destruction of their beloved city. They saw their temple destroyed. They saw the holy objects of the temple being removed by the Babylonians. They saw their people, their women, their children, their men killed. They saw how they were forced to march hundreds of kilometers away to a foreign land. And perhaps they began to doubt God's ability to do as He said. They further doubted when God promised that He would restore them to a glory that would be greater than the glories of the kingdom of David and of Solomon. It would surpass the greatness of King Hezekiah's rule, the greatness of King Uzziah's rule, the greatness of King Josiah's rule. It will be magnificent. And these people living in hopelessness and in exile wonder, can God really do these things? It is an impossibility in the state in which we live. To put it in your context, we wonder sometimes, will our country of the Philippines ever become a first world country. If I were to take a survey this morning, will the Philippines ever be like the United Kingdom or America? How many of you believe so? No one. Is it because you don't love your country? Is it because you don't have hope for this country? The reality is, most of us have given hope. Now I can come up here, and every president can come up here and tell you our country will grow to be one of the great nations of this world, and we just all shake our heads. That's the contextual understanding of these people. These prophets are coming, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, and they're saying the nation of Israel will once again be the premier country and people and serve as a worldwide capital, and these people are shaking their heads. No way. It's not going to happen. So how do you encourage a people who don't believe that the God who says those things can do the impossible. He's got to prove it. And that's what he does in chapter 37. Look with me. Verse 1 and 2. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley. 
and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. God brings the prophet Ezekiel to a valley full of bones. The Bible gives us a descriptive understanding that these bones were very dry, indicating that the human beings that these bones belonged to had been long dead. All the organic things that surrounded the body had long ago decayed. They were dead. You know, it's really funny in the English language when someone says, that person is really dead. It's kind of funny. How can you be really dead? Once you're dead, you're dead. As, as if we believe that if someone dies or something dies, it can be resurrected again with a snap of a finger. And so to describe something dead, we say, well, that thing is really dead. That thing is really, really, really dead. Really, 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 really dead. And that's the idea of what verses 1 to 2 is telling us, if I can put it in my own language. These bones are really, 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 really dead. There is no hope of bringing these bones and making them come alive again. It is a description of the impossibility of what people thought the nation of Israel and their chances were of being revived. You see, this valley of dry, dead bones would serve as the metaphor to the nation Israel. They were in the same situation. She was, quote-unquote, dead as a people. They had no more land. There was no legal ramifications for them going to a universal court and saying, the Babylonians took our land, we'd like it back. No, they were moved hundreds of kilometers, thousands of kilometers away to a foreign land. All of them, they were exiled. And other people moved in and claimed their homes and took over their lands. The royal line that began with David was no more with the death of King Zedekiah. All of his sons were killed. The end of the royal lineage of David had happened. No one could rightfully rule as king at that moment. There was no more functional capital. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple, which served as the unifying community altarpiece that drew the community together, the cultural center of the people was now gone. There wasn't anything to unify the people. No capital to speak of. No temple to speak of. Israel was dead for all intent and purpose. They were hopeless. But then God tells Ezekiel to do something. Look at verse 3. And God said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord, you know. Now, God asks Ezekiel a very interesting question. Can these dead, dry bones come alive again? Ezekiel must have thought, what a silly question. Humanly impossible. Now you've got to understand that up to the point of Ezekiel, according to the Scriptures, there has never been a resurrection of someone from the dead. The Bible is very clear. The first one to conquer death and was resurrected is Jesus Christ. 
So Ezekiel doesn't have any past experience by which to draw from. Can these dead, 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 dead bones live again? Ezekiel's response, Oh Lord God, you know, only you know. Probably shaking his head in the process. Look what the Lord asks him to do, verse 4 to 6. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. God asks Ezekiel to do something quite funny. He was to preach to a bunch of dead bones. I feel like that some Sundays. There is no response He is to preach to these dead bones and tell these dead bones who cannot respond, you will live again. In this moment, tendon and ligaments and tissues, the organic material would begin to develop over you. The skin would come upon you. A complete reversal of the decaying process. And more than that, the bones would not simply be dead cadavers with skin and tissue, but they would actually live because God would breathe life into them. Let me stop you here, and I want to ask you a few questions. Without you reading ahead, although I know some of you know what's going to happen next, would you believe God when He tells you to speak to dead bones? If God were to tell you, I'd like you to go on November 1 to the cemetery And I'd like you, with all the thousands of people there, to yell at those gravestones and say, Bones, in a few minutes, tissue and skin will come upon you and you will live. Would you do that? Would you do that? If I told you, God told each one of you to go November 1 and speak to the dead bones at the cemetery. I think none of you would do that. Why? Because we'd be embarrassed. We'd think, my goodness, if I do that, they'll laugh at me. They'll think I'm a crazy person. But why wouldn't you do that? Because I said at the beginning of this illustration, God told you to do this but yet we don't do it, and we wouldn't do it. We probably would never do it. Because in the back of our minds, there is a 1% to 5%, perhaps, for more, 10% chance that these bones will not come alive again. Right? Isn't that true? Why don't we go if God instructs us to go? Because in the back of our minds, we don't think it will happen. There you begin to understand the reason why many Christians do not cultivate a faith that can wither the storms of criticism. Because you cannot believe in the God who is doing the impossible if you cannot first believe in the power of His words.
Does that make sense? You cannot claim with your mouth that you believe that God can do the impossible when you first do not believe in the power of His words. If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you have faith? You'd all raise your hand. I have faith. But with that faith, I want God to prove Himself. Well, think about that. Think about how ironic that statement is. What is the basic definition of faith? Believing in that which you cannot see. Well, you all know the definition. Believing in that which you cannot see is faith. And yet, in our Christian faith walk, what do we say? I will believe when I see. When I see. No wonder our faith is malleable. No wonder our faith is so shallow. Because we cannot even begin with step one to believe the power of His Word. When we say we have faith, we are to believe the Word of God in the Scriptures and take it at face value. And you say, Pastor, why are you making such a big deal about this? I'm making such a big deal about this because so many Christians live in a way in which they only believe God is able to do something when He shows it. So you won't believe in the promises of God unless He executes on it. So we believe that God can heal only when He heals. We only believe that God punishes the unrighteous when we see He destroys my enemies. We only believe He loves me when He blesses me with material things or when He gives me a child. That's when He believes. That's when I believe He loves me. The result is we actually don't believe in God fully We believe in the results. Does that make sense? We don't actually believe in God. We're just believing in the results. You remember the story of Daniel's three friends? I love that story. If you're unfamiliar with it, Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the book of Daniel, we're told, because it was an edict of the land, to go and bow before this graven image, an idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And his three friends would not bow. And so they were brought before the king. And the king says, bow or you'll be thrown into this fiery furnace. And I love what they said. Remember what they said? And I'm paraphrasing here. They said, our God can save us. But if he chooses not to do so, we will still not bow down. I love that. Our God has the ability to save us, but if He doesn't, we won't bow down. Because their theological belief is that we do not believe in God because of what He does for me. We believe in God because of who He is. And there is a clear distinction in that. You and I need to shift our focus from believing in God with a result-oriented faith to one of a character-oriented faith in God. Note that. Let me repeat that again. That's important. We need to shift the basis of our trust from a result-oriented faith in God to a character-oriented faith in God. 
Result-oriented outcomes are great for business. In the business world, in the corporate world, you need results or else your business goes bankrupt. But that which is for the business world has no bearing on matters of personal faith. And yet so many Christians live a result-oriented type of faith. We have forgotten that faith rests on a person, the person of God, who is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign. And the list goes on. If God says it will happen, that should be sufficient for us to hang our faith on. That way, when the Word of God says our eternal life is secured in His hands, when the Word of God says He will reward us for our faithfulness, that He will resurrect us from the dead, we don't have to have doubt that He will do so. Because His character is at stake. I want you to think about that. We have to take God's Word at face value or else He is a fraud. And this church is just perpetuating a fraud. Do any of you believe that? Of course not. You say, we believe in the one true God. Well, if you believe in the one true God, then you have to take His Word at face value. You know, a lot of people are scared of death. Why are they scared of death? Especially Christians. We know that Christians shouldn't be scared of death, and yet Christians are scared of death. It's because they just want to be sure that when they die, they will go to heaven. Well, here's the problem. How many times can you die? Once. Once. Only one time can you die. I know that some of you would love it if God gives everyone a 10-second experience in the afterlife. Wouldn't that be great? Lord, just give me 10 seconds of a glimpse of heaven. Give me 10 seconds of a glimpse of hell to know that I really don't want to go there. But he doesn't. The Bible is so clear. It is appointed unto man to die once. Near-death experiences is not death. It is simply near death. But yet we want God to assure us that if we believe in Him and place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then we go to heaven. Well, guess what? You have to take His word for it. And if God does not bring you to heaven for one who has placed their trust in Him, then He is a fraud. But the very character of who God is tells us that He will keep His Word because God doesn't lie. You see, the more you know about God, the less you fear death. And it's because we have a result-oriented faith that we live without any faith assurance. That's why those who foundation their faith upon a good work salvation never has assurance because they're never sure how good you must be to get to heaven, right? I can go to my friends who believe in a good works salvation. And I will ask them, as you should ask them, how good do you have to be to go to heaven? That's actually one of the most dangerous questions to ask them. It will cause them sleepless nights. Why? Because they don't know. 
There is no standard by which good works gets you to heaven. But the Bible tells us there is a standard. It is perfect holiness. And if anyone can reach that level, you go to heaven. If you can't, your only other assurance is to believe in the substitutionary atonement, the finished work of Jesus dying in your place, and that guarantees you a place in heaven. When you make that fundamental shift from a result-oriented faith to a character-driven faith in God, you can take God's Word at face value. You can believe Him. God will now show the extent of the ability of the one we place our trust in. You see, when someone makes a promise, their capacity to execute on it is important. When you make a promise, you have to have the capability to execute on your promise or else you are a trickster, a charlatan, a fraud. Like if I were to promise you this morning, every one of you will get from me a million dollars. Wouldn't that be great? But I don't have that capacity. I've just lied to you. I'm a fraud. If I were to come to you and tell you, if you ask me to pray, my prayer will absolutely heal you. I would also be a fraud. And yet some pastors perpetuate that theology. Because no man or woman has the power to heal apart from God. So the best I can do when I stand here to make you promises is that I can promise to give each one of you one centavo. That's my capacity. As a pastor, I can make a promise to you that I can pray with you to seek God's will, whether He will heal you or not. That's my capacity as a pastor. If I promise you beyond my capacity and ability, I'm lying and therefore a fraud. Therefore, when God says, I can do these things, His very character is at stake. So what is the extent of His ability? Take a look at verses 7 to 10. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over and there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. I don't know, when I read these verses, what came into my mind was shake, rattle, and roll. Uh, I know it's a movie, unfortunately, but that kind of describes what's happening. There was a noise, a shaking, a rattling of the sound, and these bones came together. And before the very eyes of Ezekiel, tissue, organic tissue, and tendons all came on, and the flesh came upon them, and then God breathed the breath of life. Only God sustains life. He breathed the breath of life into them, 
And they lived and they stood up. An exceedingly great army. Perhaps this valley was one of the many valleys. I'm just conjecturing here. Perhaps the valley of Elah or others where many men died on the battlefield centuries ago. These very dead bones lived. Ezekiel must have been in shock. What's the point of all this? The simple point is that God was displaying the extent of His ability in His action. He is showing that He is able to do what no one else is able to do. That's what He's been doing throughout the Scriptures, not only in this one occasion. Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? He showed that He can do what no one else can do. Do you remember in the gospel accounts, Jesus Christ, God himself, what did he do? He fed the multitudes with two fish and five loaves. You see, throughout the scriptures, God's miraculous work authenticated his message. He says, this is the extent of my ability. You don't believe in a God who simply talks a lot. You believe in a God whose mighty works show forth His ability to do the impossible. This is important to understand because the doubters may wonder, is God really able to destroy Israel's enemy in chapter 35 in their state of depression? The answer is yes. Is he able to restore them to greater glory as chapter 36 talks about? The answer is yes, and it is because he can make dead bones live. And in case you miss it, he is very clear. Look at verse 11 and 12. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry. Note this, our hope is lost and we ourselves are cut off therefore prophesy and say to them thus says the Lord God behold O my people I will open your graves and cause you to come out from your graves and bring you into the house of Israel into the land of Israel God's ability and capacity to restore a dead nation is evidence Of his capacity. You know, if you are a student of history, which I am, and I hope you will be, by any stretch of the imagination, the Jewish people should have been wiped off the face of this earth a long time ago. Satan has been wanting to destroy these people. Revelations chapter 12 tells us he's very angry because this nation gave birth to the Messiah, which crushed his head, which led to his demise. And so historically, nations have tried to exterminate the Jewish people. The Assyrians tried to do it. The Babylonians tried to do it. The Egyptians have been trying to do it for centuries. The Romans, even in the Spanish Inquisitions, they tried to get rid of the Jews. In Nazi Germany, they tried to do and enact the final solution. Even the Christians in the time of the medieval crusades. And the list goes on and on of a historical hatred for the Jewish people. That's why in the dictionary there is a term, anti-Semitism, an historic acknowledgement 
that for centuries the world has sought forth the destruction of the Jewish people. But the wonderful thing is God has been protecting them. Sometimes we wonder, why are we in this Asian context so concerned about the Jewish people? You see, my friends, the story of the Jewish people is a picture, a real picture, a fulfillment of God's ability to do the impossible. That's why in the book of Romans, which we'll soon study, God uses the people of Israel and their history to tell about God's sovereignty at work in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. The story of the Jewish people is a story not of their struggle. They don't deserve to be saved. But the Jewish people's story is the story of a providential God who made a promise to their forefather an unsolicited promise that he will bless this nation by his grace. And the fact that they exist today in this world is a testimony to you and to me that God is a promise-keeping God. And he can do the impossible. You see, when they were kicked out of the land of Canaan, one last time in 70 AD when General Titus came, they were gone for almost 2,000 years. From what I know about history, there have been no nation that I know of that has been removed from their land for more than 100 years. There are some temporary removals, and then they come back. But there is no nation that I know of that have been removed from their land and then come back and be reestablished as a viable community. The Aztecs of Mexico... The Incas of Peru, we can go on and on. The Native Americans of America, the First Nations of Canada, once they're removed from their land, their culture suffers. They are not viable like they once were before. The only story of a nation exiled, not only for 100 years, close to 2,000 years, and then brought back is only by the hand of a sovereign God who moves his hand across the world to affect world history. We can't even lick our elbows and we want to demand from God certain things. Here is a God who orchestrates world history to make sure that in 1948 they are restored back to the very land that Abram had bought from the Canaanites in the book of Genesis. Now, the current state of Israel is not the fulfillment of this prophecy, but it gives you a glimpse of how God will fulfill His promises in the millennium. You know, the UN, after World War II, could have given Israel any piece of land. They could have given them Canada. Canada. You know, lots of land, very few people, sweeping mountains, relative peace. But they gave them the land right smack in the center of the Arab people who hated them. They were given back their ancestral homeland by a divine will of God. And on that very day in 1948 when they declared independence, their neighbors who didn't like them there attacked them. Now here is a nation that did not have a standing army. They were just created as a nation. 
1948, known as the War of Independence, they attacked on the day they declared their sovereignty as a nation, and they won. That's why it's called the miracle of 1948. No military historian would tell you that they should have won that battle. But God was protecting His people. What God wants, God fulfills. And then, just a few years later, 1967, in a surprise attack by the Syrians, the Egyptians from the south, the Jordanians from the east, they came and they attacked Israel. It's known as the Six Days War. Not because they conquered Israel in six days, but because Israel was able to defeat these forces and they'd driven Syria, Egypt, and Jordan to the lands beyond Israel that the UN called for a truce. Six days is enough, Israel, or else you may get too much land. And they even made Israel give back the land that they took when other people attacked them. My goodness. How does that work? Yet God was sovereignly at work. They shouldn't have won that war. And if you think that's by chance, unsettled by their losses of 1967, six years later they attacked again, 1973, on a holiday. Now, I'm not knocking our wonderful AFP forces here, but the reality is when there's a holiday in the Philippines, everyone goes on a holiday mentality, right? I mean, no construction, nothing happens. If there was an opposing force who came and attacked the Philippines, they would choose Christmas. I mean, the fences are down. We'd all sang karaoke the night before, right? We're in a drunken stupor. This country could be taken over pretty quickly. Well, they came and attacked on the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. When the whole nation was on a national holiday, they attacked. They should have lost. They should have lost. Unprepared on a national holiday. And yet they won. Why does God keep preserving the Jewish people? Why are they not wiped off the face of this earth by now? Because here is a God who does the impossible because He must do so to protect His reputation. Verse 13. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. When I've opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves, God says, the preservation of this people, their future restoration, is an outworking that says, I can do the impossible. And so you can believe, because Israel still exists today, the Jewish people still exist today, you can believe that God can resurrect the dead. You can believe that God will give you an incorruptible body. You can believe, God, that He will give you His riches untold. You can have an eternal security because God is a God who does the impossible. Very quickly, the second half of this chapter, verses 15 to 23, talks about the joining of the two parts of the nation to be unified at last. Now remember from Solomon, a little bit of Jewish history, after Solomon, the nation was torn into two. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Ten nations in the north known as Israel. Two nations in the south known as Judah. Well, what happened to the northern tribes? Well, they didn't have a very righteous king. And so in 722 B.C., the Assyrians exiled them. So the question people often ask is, 
What happened to these ten tribes? Go back home this afternoon. Very interesting. Google ten lost tribes of Israel. And all the conspiracy theories come out. Because everyone is wondering, what happened to these ten lost tribes? Oh, they're crazy. Some said one tribe went to China. Another said the tribe went to Africa. The Mormons believe one of the lost tribes uh, is the American Native American Indians. It's funny, I mean, but don't believe any of it. But everyone's asking, what happened to these ten lost tribes? Listen carefully. There are no ten lost tribes of Israel. Why? Because God doesn't lose anything. He knows exactly where they are. And the Bible tells us in verses 15 to 28 of this chapter, He will join the ten tribes with these two. And we see that in Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, there is a listing of the 144,000 witnesses, and they specifically mention these ten tribes that are so-called lost. Look at verse 21. Then say to them, thus says the Lord, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations. Note this. Wherever they have gone, God knows where they are, they're not lost. I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own lands. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. Not only does God bring them back into their homeland, He finds these tribes of Israel, and they exist today, and He will restore what has not been historically viable for 3,000 years. He will bring them today, not because He wants to, but because He wills it. And His character says, it will happen. Final verse as we close, verse 14. The summary verse, if you have been lost throughout this whole sermon, just note verse 14. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Note this, underline this part, circle it, highlight it. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, note this, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. Spoken it, performed it. That's our outline right there. If you ever doubt the impossible acts of God, think about His character. And if you believe that His character is solid and pure, then you have to take what He says at face value because He has spoken it. And you can believe in His spoken word because the extent of His ability is that He is able to perform it. If the Lord God can make very dead bones live again, He can do everything He says He will do. Do you remember that list at the beginning I gave you? As I preached about heaven, I believe that in the resurrected body, with its incorruptibility, you will be able to do what you cannot humanly do now. You will be able to travel at light speed, You have to, because the Bible tells us in the millennium, you must travel between heaven and serving here on earth. And that's hundreds of millions and billions of light years away. By the time you try to make it to earth, the millennium will be over. So you've got to travel in light speed. For sure, you'll be able to run a two-minute mile because you travel in light speed. 
should be able to fly with your own power. You can walk on water. We get a glimpse with Peter, remember? By faith, he walked on water. It is possible. Because your body is incorruptible, you cannot die. And because there are bodies of water in the new heaven and new earth, the Bible talks about it, you can hold your breath for an hour or even longer. Imagine scuba diving without gear. Raise the dead. Well, you yourself have experienced it. Every person you see in heaven is a product of God raising the dead. And you can change your past because God will restore in heaven all the things you've missed out. He will restore to perfection what you yourself cannot change with your own power today. He will restore you unblemished, sinless, to experience all the joy that God has for you. The ramifications of knowing and holding true that the God who does the impossible can be held to his word would change the way you and I live our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is more theological this morning, but I hope the Holy Spirit will continue to be our teacher and to our guide and be our guide to allow each person here this morning to fundamentally shift their faith from a result-oriented faith to a character foundation faith in you, the Almighty God, whose spoken words hold the same weight as truth and whose actions seen in the past and the present and will be in the future is a done deal showing the extent of your ability, which is to do the impossible. May this truth shake us with confidence to stand before a world that questions the God we worship so that we can stand in confidence like the great heroes of faith, not wavering in our convictions because God is a living God. You are a living God. And you resurrected your son and you will resurrect us as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.